0: Okie dokie. So, well, that got your attention. Now I know I say okie dokie and everybody quiets up. Okie dokie. So my name is Mike. I'm one of the guys on staff here um, and have been here f- for quite a long time. But every time I get to speak, I get to do the weird stuff. I'm the one who makes you write on walls. I'm the one who makes you walk in the woods um, I'm the one who suggests that we cover the entire Old Testament in four weeks using flannel. Who is here for that? Yeah. I still think that that was awesome. And we we need to do it. It was almost like a practical joke to pull on my staff members uh, and the other guys on staff, though. You know, because I look at them and I say, you can't really see Advent is so profound. But it isn't if you don't know what happened before it. If you have no idea what happened in the Old Testament, you don't really know the ark, and you don't really know the story, then how does it have any meaning? You're dropped into the middle of something. And I said, what if we did the entire Old Testament in four weeks? And that's when somebody said, we could do it in flannel. That wasn't really, that was my idea. I won't take credit for that. But then it turned into awesome. So so here, we're going to do um, another one of those uh, historical dives, um, there will be graphs, but no flannel. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't make the flannel happen, but we are going to do the same idea where we're going to be painting a large swath of history. And it's not really like a two inch brush. It's not really a three inch brush. It's more like Wagner power painters on the side of your house. That's about how much detail we can go into today, but hopefully by the end, we'll have some sense of context for Advent. That's the goal. Okay. Everybody with me? Cool. We're going to start with a story because every time I speak, I like to start with a story because stories are fun. Um, I'm going to tell you the story of, of a dictator, of a, just a violent, vile dictator who was hellbent on what? Who was hell bent on conquering the entire galaxy. He was just an evil, evil person. And he liked to, uh, to choke even his own people. He liked to blow up Alderaan right in front of the ruling princess. Just a vile, vile person. And the next thing I'm going to tell you about this story is when he is lying on the steps of a ship. And he's dying. And there's some guy there who happens to be doing the same kind of like loving neck choke thing apparently that he was doing to the princess earlier just reversed and that's the next thing i'm going to tell you about the story okay how much meaning does that have It, it doesn't have a lot but how many people have seen star wars okay so you guys know what's happening here right what's happening here You just shout it out. Darth Vader's dying. Okay, who's the dude? Who's the other guy? His son. Even, oh, we didn't know about his son in the previous pictures. That's his son. Whoa, and Darth Vader's not a robot. He's a dude. Apparently. A bald dude. And his son apparently is showing him favor. Again, we wouldn't know any of this if we didn't know that middle section. If we didn't learn about, you know, we can rule the galaxy as father and son, you know, and we didn't see the, no, and we didn't see the, the first Death Star blow up and the second one being built. This would, this is completely out of context and it lacks meaning. So what I'm making the case for and what I made the the case to Pastor Scott about is that Advent, the arrival of Jesus is you know that's one of those i don't know really significant events and up until that point scripture scripture just lies dormant for about 400 years Ma- uh, the the last book of the old testament is the book of malachi and it was written about 430 bc and that's where that's where we leave and if if we didn't know any better which to be perfectly honest, until the beginning of this week, I didn't know any better. I knew a little better, but not a lot better. Malachi ends, and then Matthew starts. And there's nothing said about this middle section. We, and if this is our only source, this is, this is what we get. So we get Darth Vader blowing junk up, and then the next thing, we got this guy that we don't know, who's holding apparently Darth Vader, who apparently is human and can die. Like, that's what we get. So I asked Scott the question. I said, hey, um, you need somebody to speak because you just finished the capital campaign. And, and I really want to know what happened between 430 B.C. and somewhere around 3 B.C., which is when most people think Jesus was born. And, and he said, okay, this is either going to be a train wreck or awesome. And I said, well, either way, it's entertaining. Yeah? <laughs> so... That's what we're going to do. So today we're going to be talking about that period where, as Scott said, God lay silent. Um, Let's ratchet it back. We have to go back a little bit before that. Um, And to start with, I want to find out what does everybody know? What do you guys already know about, (laughs) let's say, um, let's say the destruction of the temple which, can anybody just pull out of their head when, when the temple was destroyed? Seriously, I'll give you candy if you can do this. There's no, well, there is a right answer, but there are no wrong answers. It's okay. <laughs> I think it was 586 BC. Um, so between there and Jesus, what happened? Throw stuff out, if you, know, if, if you have any ideas. Roman Empire. Roman Empire. We know that because in the New Testament, we've got Roman Empire. So that must have happened. Good. Love it. What else? Temple rebuilt. Temple rebuilt. Alexander. Cheater. This is Jesse Pierce over here. He helped me a lot. Uh, <laughs> okay. Alexander, who was great. <laughs> hey, and Greek. Greek, okay, so we've got Greece, we've got Rome, we've got Alexander, who was great. What else? Aristotle, Aristotle who was Greek and pretty cool. He wasn't great, but he was cool. Aristotle, philosopher, uh, Greek thought. That will come into play a little bit. What else? Yes, a little bit. Yes. Yes. There will be some action happening in Egypt, for sure, because lots of stuff happens in Egypt. What else? Sweet. So we were at the same starting point. That's about what I knew, too. Awesome. Okay. This is fun. Are we having fun yet? Okay. Okay, cool, because it's going to get more fun. Next slide, please. All righty have to start with Babylon, okay? We got to roll it back a little bit before the temple. This matters pretty significantly. Um, the the two key people that I want to just throw at you are Nebuchadnezzar um, and Belshazzar. Do you guys recognize those names? You might, yeah, Old Testament stuff. Where did, where did you see them? Who's that? Daniel, Daniel? yep, totally. Jeremiah, maybe um, under under Nebuchadnezzar, he was the Babylonian king that came in and just completely sacked Judah. So we've got that, and I will let you know that I am cheating. By the way, I have I had to have lots of notes. Um, he's followed by um, several several guys. But um, Belshazzar is the guy that we need to know about. Um, he's Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Okay? Um, do you recognize that name? Where, where have you heard that name from? I saw, I saw a couple heads nodding. So if you recognize that name, just shout it out. Yes, there was a feast. Where did, where did we hear about that from? The writing on the wall? Mm hmm. Why he's important, at least for our story, is that he gets conquered. That's why we need to know that. He gets conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. That's the next bullet. Um, so again, we've, we've got the Jews who are first conquered by Babylon. Then they're, then they're also conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, the Medo-Persian Empire was a slightly different beast, though. They were slightly more favorable to, to Israel. Israel. And to Judah. We're looking at two key guys here Cyrus and Artaxerxes are the guys that we want to know here. Um, Cyrus, uh, he became the ruler of the Medo Persian Empire in 550 BC. And he was the guy who conquered Belshazzar. Uh, This event is recorded in the book of Daniel. So again, you're going to see this theme that a lot of this. This earlier stuff, we, we do have biblical record of as well. And obviously, the Bible should not be our only authority on history. But it's nice when history and Scripture can kind of coexist. You know, like those times when you see science and the Bible coexist. You know, it stops fighting. It stops, stops that intellectual thing. This thing. That was awesome. The people in the podcast are going to be going, what? what's the thing? It's my two fists ramming together for those people in Indiana who are listening. Um, so so, um, so Cyrus, Cyrus comes in and defeats the Babylonian Empire. Um, under Cyrus is when you see um, a more benevolent dictatorship. Babylon, uh, the Babylonian rule, and, and go ahead and correct me if I'm missing details. Um, uh, the Babylonian rule was far less pleasant. Um, under the Medo-Persian Empire, there was, there was a more favorable tone taken to Israel. And this is where you see the rebuilding of the temple. Under Babylon, the temple is destroyed. Under the Medo-Persian Empire, the temple is allowed to be rebuilt. And we see a lot of that record um, in Nehemiah, um, in Chronicles, there's, uh, there's mention of this time too. Uh, I am totally blitzing through this stuff because there's so much material. So please remember, Wagner Power Painter, that's the kind of history we're doing today. And interject stuff as you're going. Because as I, as I told Scott, this is a period that I don't know a whole lot about, but I wanted to. And I figured that most people um, who hang out in modern evangelical Protestant churches, we don't know anything about this time. And it's not because there isn't stuff available. It's just because we don't talk about it. So we're talking about it today. Big Wagner power painter brush across 400 years of history. Um, Back to our story. With, um, With Cyrus, you get the rebuilding of the temple. There are a a few guys after Cyrus, and the end of the Medo-Persian reign is with this second guy, Artaxerxes. Um, And we see uh, Artaxerxes come up in Nehemiah 2. This is where uh, the walls are rebuilt for the temple, and temple worship is reinstated under, under Artaxerxes. But... As with most things that happen in Israel and Judah, this is, this is a period of moderate benevolence that will not last. Um, the, theme, the theme that we're going to see through, these, through this time period is that Israel and Judah are constantly conquered people. They, they, are, they are people that are passed from one conquering um, empire to another conquering empire. And even if those two, even if the empires that are warring aren't directly warring over them, they're warring in their backyard. So often if, if, if the Israelites and the Hebrew people aren't the, aren't the source or the, the thing that people are fighting over, it's where the fighting is happening. So they wind up becoming part of it anyway, uh, the Medo Persian Empire starts to wane as the Greek Empire starts to grow. And we all mentioned, uh, Jesse mentioned Alexander the Great, and I heard Aristotle over here, um, two key figures in, in uh, the Hellenistic world. Uh, how, how many people know Alexander the Great or have heard of him? Uh, what's that? Who saw the movie? <laughs> I didn't even see the movie. Dang. Um, Alexander the Great is, is the son of Philip of Macedon, um, who was the kind of the unifying figure of the Greek empire. He was the guy who, kind of, who unified all of the Greek city states, brought them together into one big thing. And then Alexander the Great is the guy who spread it all over, everywhere. He is widely known as the, the greatest military leader of history. He managed to, in uh, oh, the middle 300s, managed to spread the Hellenistic world from Greece to the peninsula of Gibraltar over in, uh, over at Spain, that side of the Mediterranean, all the way over... To the Eastern side of China he, he was profound and prolific in his military conquering. What he brought with him though is he brought with him Greek culture, and Greek culture winds up influencing everything you know it 's very much i don 't I don't necessarily want to make a a one to one comparison, but it feels a whole lot like like um, like going to Russia and finding McDonald's, you know, like he wherever he went, wherever he went, that culture went with him. The um, the culture of of philosophy, the establishment of libraries and gymnasiums and sporting events, and one of those libraries becomes a very pivotal location in uh, the spread of the early church. The library at Alexandria one of the hubs of the early church is Alexandria in Egypt. And that was established by Alexander the Great. Alexandria, Alexander. Okay, we're seeing the connections here. You guys falling asleep? No? Okay. It also the birth of theater during this time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I like to more think of it as... As I am the question asker, and, and you guys are helping me answer it. But actor theater, I'll go with it, because uh, I am a little bit of a ham. Uh, but yes, the birth of theater also comes with the Hellenistic culture. Um, other things. Y- you guys can participate just as much. What's your name, by the way? Katie? Katie? Just as much as Katie. Just go ahead and shout stuff out if, if you have things in your head and in your, your history of learning that you can share. I am definitely not an expert. I'm just someone who's really interested. Um, but we also have the establishment of the Greek language. Um, and this will become important because during the, during the period of Greek occupation in Israel and Judah is when you start to see the, the Old Testament form and when you see it translated into what's called the Septuagint. Who's heard, who's heard of the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And later on in history, you'll start to get arguments over the validity of the Septuagint versus the Latin Vulgate. And that gets really exciting. And there's a lot of drama and it's, it's a great story that we have zero time to talk about now. Um, so Greek culture, major, major, major influence in the region. Um, under under Alexander the Great, it's a little bit more of a um, a spread of something. Towards the end of the of the Greek occupation, you get this guy Antiochus Epiphanes, and that under Antiochus, it's not so much a spread as it's a an infection. It's 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 almost forced conversion into into a Greek culture. Um, there are two significant. Uh, people between these guys that I didn't list on the slide. At the death of Alexander the Great, um, the, the Greek Empire is split up into quadrants, split up into regions based upon his key leaders. Um, as it happens, the area where Israel and Judah are is kind of laid claim by two different guys. Ptolemy, who is... Uh, also governor, vice, viceroy, chancellor, whatever term we want of, uh, of Egypt. So he's down here and, and a guy who I'm going to butcher, um, I think his name is Seleucius. I'm going to go with it. Um, yeah, it sounds Greek, but I have it here. If you want the spelling, I'm just horrible with pronunciations. He's Northern Syria and Babylon. He, so he's up here, and we've got Ptolemy down here. These guys are constantly warring for control of this region. Again, the Jews are not the object of this war. But the war is happening in their backyard. So they become subject of it. Um, under the Ptolemaic influence, um, the, the culture of Israel is more peaceably blended with Greek culture. But sadly... Um, the Ptolemaic reign falls prey to the Seleucid reign, um, or the Seleucids, as they're as they're known. Um, I'm totally butchering that dude's name. If somebody wants to pronounce S E L E U C I D S for me, I'm gonna go with Seleucid. Um, they wind up becoming victorious. And they are the line that Antichus Epiphanes comes out of. Um, They are far less favorable to Jewish culture, and they're far more insistent on Greek culture. So what you see under Antichus Epiphanes, who is in the line of the Seleucids, is is conversion to a Hellenistic culture, a Greek culture, almost by the sword. Things like um, temple worship which we've already destroyed once and rebuilt, is now going to be eliminated again. Um, the removal of the sign of circumcision is forced. So circumcision as, as part of um, identification as, as a Hebrew is no longer allowed. And do you, you guys know kind of the story of circumcision, why it's there, its meaning, its weight, its importance. It's kind of the baptism in Judaism, and <clears throat> it's no longer allowed. Um, the, the Jewish laws are abandoned, um, and they're replaced with a polytheistic uh, Grecian law. And um, even things down to Jewish names, you start to see that, um, that under Antiochus Epiphanes, any semblance of being Jewish is is slowly but surely pushed away um, and it 's not pushed away by persuasion it 's not pushed away because we asked to it 's pushed away by punishment of death so this this is a very 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 dark time um, and it 's into this into this time that we start to see some pretty significant uprisings, and this was the only part. In this period, I'm not nearly as adept at the mute. There we go. This is the only um, thing that I had heard much about. Is anybody familiar with the book of Maccabees? Okay, a few people. Um, How many people who are familiar with the book of Maccabees come from a Roman Catholic tradition? So many people. Um, The book of Maccabees is actually accepted scripture in Eastern Orthodox churches, in Roman Catholic churches, and it is the history of the uprising of the family of the Maccabees against uh, Greek rule and against Antiochus Epiphanes. It starts with the father. His name is Mattathias. He's up there. And he was kind of like a a guerrilla revolutionary. And, and his revolution was a small band. Um, upon his death, his son, Judas Maccabees, thank you so much. Tim just brought me water for those people on the podcast. Um, <laughs> and I am thankful. Um, so Mattathias, guerrilla warfare kind of guy, small band of rebels um, on an ice planet. And no, that's Star Wars again small band of rebels. He dies and his, um, his son, Judas, uh, takes up the charge. Judas is manages to build himself a really significant army. He's given the, uh, the name Judas Maccabees or Maccabeus, um, cause he was a real tool. Um, okay. That didn't work. Maccabees is the, is the Jewish word for hammer. Ah, yeah, so Judas was a tool, um, but he was also a liberator, and he, he brings independence for the Jewish people. Um, it's known as the Maccabean Wars, and you can read about the Maccabean Wars in the book of Maccabees. If, you, if you're at all curious, there are two books. There's first Maccabees, second Maccabees. Um, one is a Greek translation. 2 um, Maccabees is a translation of the first seven chapters of 1 Maccabees. 1 um, Maccabees is much longer. Um, I highly encourage you, if you're interested, to read it. It's, it's a very salty story. It's really, really cool. Um, and it's, it's, depending on your bent, it's scriptural, which is really cool. Um, in December of 164 B.C., is when Judas Maccabees retakes the temple. He retakes the temple with his army, and they repurify, they re-purify it, they purify it and, and begin Jewish temple worship again. Um, this is significant if you have any Jewish friends who celebrate Hanukkah. This is where Hanukkah comes from. This is the, the celebration of the, of the purification of the temple under the revolution of the Maccabees. Uh, The Maccabees, I don't know what it is with this cough, Um, the Maccabees revolution brings independence, but it also brings a new succession of leaders. And these leaders are the last people that we'll talk about um, and their connection to Rome. Um, The Hesmonians follow the Maccabees and... (coughs) I am so sorry about this cough. Um, the Hesmonians are, are a very... Uh, what's, what's the word when you give in to a, to a pressure? Acquiesce. That's what I was looking for. They're, they're very quick to acquiesce. As, as Greece is starting to wane, Rome is starting to rise. And Rome is coming in And and retaking areas where where Greece had uh, the the Grecian Empire had spread, and they're as much bringing their brand of culture as they are assimilating aspects of Roman of uh, Greek culture. So as the as the Greek Empire is waning, the Roman Empire is rising, and the Roman Empire comes into this region and conquers it through war, but also through influence. And in large part, that's because we have the Hesmonians who are more than willing to acquiesce to Roman influence. So we start to see that freedom slowly being sold away. Under the Hesmonians, the only reason why, why you guys need to know about this is during this time is when you see the development of two political parties that become very, very important in the New Testament. Uh, One is a separatist party that wants to retain all of Jewish culture through strict adherence to the laws, through strict adherence to to kosher laws, to temple worship, and those guys are known as the Pharisees. The word Pharisee means separatist, and their brand of, of, of retaining their identity was through strict adherence to... Uh, Jewish law that <coughs> they'll come into play in the New Testament. The other group that comes into play is the Sadducees. You guys heard of the Sadducees? The Sadducees um, attempt to preserve preserve their Jewish culture by by assimilating it into Roman culture by by making political alliances and allegiances with Roman culture. And that comes into play with their court system, which is called the Sanhedrin. Do you guys know the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin um, administers Roman law and melded with Jewish culture. Uh, they, will, they will come into play in the New Testament as well. That's like 400 years of being conquered and freed and conquered and freed and conquered and freed. Questions. Good, then I've covered everything. I really haven't, though. I haven't covered everything. I haven't come even close. I haven't come even close because I haven't asked the question, "Who cares?" Is a hand? Oh my gosh. Did the Sadducees and Pharisees get along? To my knowledge, no. I, they, they had similar influences, like a similar point of conflict, but they were equally as conflicted. Similar. At times. The, um, the Pharisees... They they held the they held the power of faith. They were they were the religious right, not to not to put too fine a point on it, and that was their way of preserving Jewish heritage, as far as I know. And the that becomes important because when Jesus comes onto the scene, and he's similar, but but not at all like them, and he's starting to take. The, um, the attention of being the religious authority, he, he is taking the power of mass people, you know, of large groups of people away from, from Pharisaic order. So that, that, come, that power struggle comes into play. But the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they weren't, they weren't exactly friends. Yeah, they didn't play in the playground together. Yes. The Sadducees were much wealthier. And I think that was, I, I, this is a guess, uh, but I would, I would assume that that's probably because of their connection to Rome. Their, their, um, because they were in bed with Rome, the, the, uh, the ability to retain wealth and power was probably much larger. So the, the question remains why is this important? Who cares? The Bible is is absolutely silent, especially the Protestant Bible on this time period. Uh, We don't really talk about it in church. You know, even Pastor Pastor Scott used the phrase, this is the time when God was silent. Why do we care? That's that's the question that's most interesting to me because the answer, as far as I can tell, and the one thing, like, honestly, if you don't remember anything of what I just said, that's okay because you can look it up. I looked it up. You can look it up too. You can ask me where I looked it up and I'll give you the, the resources. It's just historical facts. That's, that's not the important thing. The, important, the, the question that's most important to me is who cares? Why is this important? And the answer that, that I want you guys to leave with is because context is everything. Like we said at the beginning, if I just showed you the picture of Darth Vader with half his helmet off, and some dude, you don't know who he is, whole, like kind of giving him a, a man hug while he's laying there, it's absolutely meaningless. We have no context to put this in. We don't understand the story. You know, I was going to bring my, um, one of my little teddy bears from when I was a kid and set it up here on, this, on the stage and say, why is this important? It's honestly, it's the ugliest teddy bear you've ever seen in your life. And so you could look at it and say, it's not. It's not important at all, except for the fact that I've had it since I was six months old, and my parents got it because they, they took out a charge card from Sears because they couldn't afford anything, so they needed a charge card. They were dirt poor, and this was the, this was the, the toy I had, and I still have it. In context, it's really important. Out of context, it's a really ugly teddy bear. I mean, really ugly. So why is this important? Because this is the world that Jesus is born into. He is born into a culture that has been tossed from conqueror to conqueror. He is born less than two generations from from independence. When I read the New Testament and I see that Rome has occupied um, Galilee, I assume that Rome's been there for a long time. They haven't. They've only been there... Like um, on December 7th, we're going to celebrate the 70th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor seems like, well, that's relatively recent history. You know, my grandfather was there. That's the same thing. Like 70 years before Jesus, Rome wasn't there. That wasn't, that wasn't the thing that they were experiencing. They were, they were still kind of experiencing the wane of revolution. So within, Three or four generations, you're you're going to start to get stories of, of a fight for independence. Within five or six generations, you're going to start to get stories of brutal oppression. This is the world that Jesus was born into. So when we start to look at proclamations of the Messiah, that may take on a different tone when we're thinking about it from the perspective of people who were there. You know, was Judas Maccabees viewed as a Messiah. He's a liberator. He's someone who's come to set the people free. When Simon Peter is frustrated uh, with Jesus because he's not liberating them from Rome, he's from that line of liberators. It starts to make a little more sense as to why he's so frustrated. And when, when we see uh, the Pharisees getting frustrated with Jesus because he's coming in as a religious leader and he's taking their power away, we start to see that, well, the Pharisees, they, they were birthed as a response to Roman occupation. And this was their way of preserving their heritage. And Jesus is coming in and taking, potentially threatening that heritage. This stuff starts to get richer when we, when we have a sense of what happened before and what the stage, what the setting was. So... Why is it important? Because context is everything. Outside of context, it's nothing more than proof texting. And proof texting is the way that we protest. (laughs) Proof texting is is the way that we oppress people. Proof texting is the way that we absolutely screw up the Bible. So let's not do that. Let's take it in context. And as we enter Advent, let's um, do yourself a favor. Find a copy of 1 Maccabees give it a skim. It's kind of cool. You know, um, you can honestly do a Wikipedia search for intertestamental period, and you will get so much information, probably 80% of it accurate, 20% of it not, but it's a start. Knowing context makes everything richer. Agreed? Cool. Um, we're about to enter communion together. Um, Again, a ritual that out of context is nothing more than coming up and tearing off a piece of pita and dipping it in some, some frenzia. You know, it's like, out of context, what is it? Within context, the, the bread, we remember Jesus breaking and saying to his disciples at their last meal, this is my body. This is the symbol of my body, broken for you. You know, and and the box wine or juice, if that's your thing, um, this is my blood. So no longer is this, even if, even if we don't subscribe to a transubstantiation style, um, this really is the bread, or the, the body and blood of Jesus in context. As you approach the table, remember that there are people all over the world who are also doing this today. So we're unified as one body of believers, all experiencing this ritual together. Um, if it would be appropriate to do this with your children, you may please feel free to go down the hall and grab them uh, before coming up. If you'd like to take communion before you get your children, that would also be cool. Um, the community table will remain open for the rest of service, so don't feel like you have to gang up on it. You can take your time if you want to sit for a little bit and think. Uh, If you want to pull me aside and correct me on my pronunciations, you're welcome to. Um, But please approach the table with confidence and approach the table in context so that it has a little bit more meaning than just bread and juice. The table is open and you're more than welcome to approach it whenever you'd like.